please turn to Luke chapter 23 with me. Luke chapter 23, we're Lord willing, going to finish this up this morning, and then we're, we, we have only 53 verses left in the Gospel of Luke after that. So I think about another year we should be finishing. No, I'm, I'm not going to make any predictions because they always uh, tend to, to not uh, be correct, but uh, there are some neat things coming up in the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be looking at the resurrection, of course, and we're going to be looking at uh, one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, talking about the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, where Jesus describes uh, Scripture and makes himself the centerpiece of all Scripture. And we're going to talk about some neat things regarding uh, the, what, what preaching is supposed to be and teaching and, and understanding God's Word together, how to understand the Old Testament. There's just going to be some neat things that we talk about as we go through Luke 24. And then, uh, Lord willing, this fall, we're going to do kind of a series where we just, we're going to do like a bird's eye view of the Old Testament, kind of talking about different sections of the Old Testament and how it all fits together and how Christ is the, the centerpiece of Scripture and kind of helping us get some of our, our, our bearings as we go through uh, the Bible. And then, Lord willing, in, this, in 2014, uh, we're going to begin going through First John. So kind of some neat things coming up, the Lord willing, in the coming months and years. Or, as I mentioned first service, the Lord could return and we'll change around some things a little bit uh, in terms of our plans and uh, enjoy that even more, right? So uh, Luke chapter 23, uh, we're looking at uh, kind of some, some dark times here as we uh, look at the time in between the cross and the resurrection. Jesus has just been crucified, and he has died, and people have reacted to that, and then we come to verse 50. So if you'd stand with me in honor of God, if you're able to, as we read his word together, verse 50 from Luke chapter 23. Now there was a man named Joseph from Arimathea, from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. You may be seated and I hope that you're encouraged through God's word this morning. Let's pray. Father, that is our prayer. Uh, our hope is in, in Christ alone. In Christ alone, our, our cornerstone, our our hope is not in ourselves, it's not in our friends, it's not in our families, it's not in anything but, but Christ. And as you reveal yourself to us this morning, help us to rejoice in that, to revel in that, and to respond to that. I pray for those who are hurting this morning that these words would be uh, your words, words that, though written 2,000 years ago, still have life and and, and your spirit breathes life into them as, as we, we take them and, and ponder them, and your spirit works them within our lives. And so we, we pray for your grace as we think through all those things, and we pray this in your Son, Jesus' name, amen. 
Lord Alfred Tennyson in 1854 wrote a poem entitled The Charge of the Light Brigade. The, the Charge of the Light Brigade. He wrote it about events that had occurred six weeks earlier. On October 25th, 1854, the British and Russians were fighting in the Crimean War, and the British Light Cavalry Division had been instructed to, to attack some Russian forces. And as they were instructed to do so, they, there was a, a, a garbled miscommunication. The cavalry division was supposed to be going after some retreating Russian forces. Instead, the command came for them to attack a, a position where the Russians were well entrenched. The, the cavalry was in no position to be able to attack the Russians where they were. They were kind of in this, this valley, and there were uh, Russian forces entrenched on either side of the valley in the middle, and this instruction came, this command came for them to, to charge into that valley. And Every person who was involved in that assault on the Russian forces knew this was a suicide mission. Something couldn't be quite right about this instruction. They knew it was a futile effort, and yet the command had come, the command had been given, and they all determined to obey it. Some 600 cavalry charged at the Russian forces, knowing that it was a suicide mission, the Russians saw this assault and thought the British were crazy. Some of them thought that they were drunk, and so they responded, and it was a, it was a slaughter, hundreds of casualties. Lord, Lord Alfred Tennyson wrote then the charge of the Light Brigade, celebrating both the, hero, the heroism of the, the people who were willing to do this charge, and yet at the same time, lamenting kind of the, the folly of the charge. And let me read to you just the first couple stanzas from the charge of the light brigade. It begins, half a league, half a league, half a league onward, all in the valley of death rode the 600. Forward the light brigade, charge for the guns, he said, into the valley of death rode the 600. Forward the light brigade. Was there a man dismayed? Not though a soldier knew someone had blundered. Theirs not to make reply. Theirs not to reason why. Theirs but to do and die. Into the valley of death rode the 600. Theirs not to reason why, there's but to do and die. There's, as one French military official wrote, there's something in this that's magnificent, but it's not war, it's, it's madness. As these men fulfilled their duty and went on that, that charge, there was something noble in their heroic sacrifice, but it was a, a sacrifice without meaning. It was a, a pointless exercise in the scheme of the war. It was a, a senseless slaughter. It was the result of, of garbled communication. Sometimes it may feel like to you, sometimes it does to me, sometimes, That the things that we're called to do in the Christian life are the result of, of garbled communication. And some of the things that we're called to do 
as Christians, seem sometimes senseless. I mean, sometimes things make sense. I mean, they're difficult, but at least they make sense. Uh, we, we are called by God to do some ministry, and we can feel God's presence as we do that ministry, and it's successful, and, and yeah, it's tough, but, but we're seeing things happen, and we feel God's presence, and so there's, there's joy in that, and there's peace. God calls us to, to do something difficult in a relationship with someone, and, and it's, it's tough, and it's difficult, but we do it, and there's success, and there's joy in that, and we see God's presence at work, and so there's, there's a sense of, yeah, it's tough, but we did it by God's grace, and God calls us to do tough things with our, our finances, and we do them, and we see God bless that, and so at least it makes sense. But sometimes we find ourselves in darkness, and we don't sense God's presence in quite the same way. We engage in this ministry, and, and we think, well, okay, I've come to God's Word, and I see what He wants me to do. Okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it, and, and as we do it, we don't sense God's presence in quite the same way, and it, it seems very dark, and, and as, as we engage in this ministry, there's a sense of, I don't know about this. This isn't just tough. It seems pointless. It seems fruitless. Or we are called by God to parent in a certain way and say, okay, well, this is what God's Word says about parenting, and then we begin to do it, and we don't sense God's presence in the way that we might, might want to feel God's presence, and we don't see the fruit that we'd want to see in the lives of our children, and it, it just seems pointless. It seems dark. We find ourselves in a relationship with another Christian, and, and we, we want to see things happen in that relationship, and, and, and we do what we think God wants us to do, and those things don't happen, and it's, it's, it's frustrating. We, we feel like we're in just kind of some darkness, or, God calls us to do, I was talking to a brother this, this last week, some, goes to a different church, and he was talking about some, some financial decisions he was, he was needing to make, and he said, okay, this is what God's Word says about what I'm to do with my finances, and I'm doing those, and wow, it's not happening. Sometimes the Christian life feels like we've gotten some garbled communication. We find ourselves in a very dark spot and we're doing difficult things that seem like they're not yielding any fruit. What do we do? What do we do when we find ourselves in a time of, of darkness? The Puritans would, would talk about this idea of, of God sometimes removing his, his presence, that we don't feel his presence in quite the same way. And what do we do in those times of, of darkness? The story that we're looking at this morning occurs after the cross and before the resurrection. Jesus has died and he hasn't resurrected. And for his disciples, it is perhaps the, the darkest of times. What I want us to see as we look at this story and specifically look at the life of Joseph of Arimathea, I want us to see that that even in the darkness of the tomb, we still follow the light. Even in the darkness of the tomb, we still follow the light. That's what I want us to grasp together as we look at this text. And my, my belief is that some of you are in the darkness of the tomb right now. And as you find yourself in the darkness of the tomb, you're wondering, okay, what does obedience look like now? Does obedience even matter? How do I process this? Even in the darkness of the tomb, follow the light.
continue to follow Jesus. We're going to see a very remarkable story about this guy Joseph and how he responds and how God uses affliction in a, in a way that I find just fascinating. So look at the text with me, if you would. We're beginning in verse 50, and we're introduced to a guy named Joseph. Now, here's the interesting thing about Joseph. Here's this guy, Joseph, and uh, what do we know about him? We have never seen this Joseph before. We have never encountered him in any of the Gospels earlier in Jesus' ministry. He never comes up. It's never like Jesus and Joseph were talking, or, and then Joseph said, or then one of the disciples said, well, what about Joseph? Joseph has never appeared before, not even like in a sneeze. Joseph has never appeared in any way, in any form whatsoever throughout any of the Gospels. And after this story, he never appears again at all in any way, in any shape, form whatsoever. He never appears in any of the rest of the Gospels. He doesn't appear in Acts. We don't see him in the epistles. There's just this one moment where his, his life is mentioned and in a very profound way. It's such a profound way that all four Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all of them mention this incident. And by the way, at this time, between the cross and the resurrection, you don't see any other disciple, any, at least of the 12 at this moment, do you? Or now the 11. Who is this guy, Joseph? Who is this guy, Joseph, that we encounter for the first time in this passage? Well, first of all, the first thing that Luke tells us is what? It tells us in Luke chapter 23 that he is a member of the council. That's the first thing that we know about him. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. And what have we just seen the Sanhedrin do throughout the last few chapters? We have seen people who are part of this council do everything they can to oppose Jesus. As he's come into Jerusalem, they opposed that. As he taught in the temple, they opposed him there. They tried to test him. They tried to trap him. Then, after those things didn't work, they bribed one of his disciples. Then, after they did that, they worked up the crowd. And at the beginning of this chapter, the beginning of Luke 23, what do you see? There's unanimity among this council in terms of the people who were there to oppose Jesus and to, to call for his being, being charged with blasphemy, and then they bring him to Pilate, and they, they trump up all these charges against Jesus, and they will not rest until Pilate agrees to their demands that Jesus should die. And so as we encounter this guy, Joseph, and the first thing that we know about him, the first thing we find out, he's a member of the council, and so there are some things that we can assume about him. We can assume that this guy is a person who opposes the ministry of Jesus. We would assume that he is a person who is very petty. We would assume that he is a person that is far more concerned with his own self-interest than with the glory of God. We could assume that he's a person who has rejected Jesus' claims concerning himself. We would assume all those things if we only knew that he was a member of the council. In other words, we just looked at this guy, and Luke says, and he was a member of the Sanhedrin, and then we never found out anything else about him. That's what we would assume. But here's the interesting thing. Luke tells us some more about him. He's a member of the council, and this guy Joseph is a good and righteous man. 
You say, what? The last time that word righteous has been used is just a few verses earlier. I think it's verse 47 where the centurion says that Jesus is, is innocent. That's that same word, righteous. Here's this guy, Joseph. He's a member of the council, a council that has worked to bring about Jesus' death that's just occurred. And, says Luke, he's, he's good. He's righteous. Now, how can that be? He goes on. This guy, Joseph, is, is one who had not consented to their decision and their action. And literally what, it, what that means there is, is this guy, Joseph, in his, in his thinking, he's different. In his, in his thought process, he doesn't think the same way that the other members of the council think. His, his thoughts about Jesus and about his ministry are, are different. So his thoughts are different, his mind concerning Jesus is different, and his actions are different as well. Luke is a really nice guy as he writes these things. Luke oftentimes leaves it to us to infer some things that the other gospel writers spell out. It's interesting, we have not encountered Joseph earlier in Luke chapter 23. We didn't encounter him earlier in Luke chapter 22 as Jesus' trials began. Joseph has been very silent. In fact, it would appear that Joseph wasn't even around whenever the trials of Jesus took place because of the unanimity of the people who were there calling for Jesus' death and, and stirring up the people and stirring up Pilate. But we haven't encountered Joseph at any other point in the chapter, at any point in chapter 22. In other words, you don't say, and then, the, it doesn't say, and then the council was talking about what to do with Jesus, and suddenly Joseph kicked in the door and said, not on my watch, guys. Not going to happen. John tells us that he was a secret disciple. He was a secret disciple for fear of the Jews. You see, we're getting a richer portrait of this guy, Joseph. He's from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He's a part of the council. He's a part of this group. He's been a part of this group that's been working to oppose Jesus, and he hasn't said anything. He's been secret. No, no one else on the council knows that he considers himself a follower of Jesus. Joseph has not been one who's, who stood for righteousness. Now, he's good. He's righteous. He doesn't agree with what they're doing. He doesn't think the same way that they're thinking. But what has he done? Nothing. He's been silent. He's been afraid. He's wealthy. Maybe he fears losing his position of prestige. Maybe he fears losing this, this spot on the council that he has. We don't know if he's a priest. We don't know if he uh, considers himself loyal to the Pharisees. But for whatever reason, he's afraid. And so he says, he says nothing. He's passive. And yet, Luke tells us, even still, and again, we're getting a picture of this guy that's full of layers, there's contradictions, he's, he's cowardly, he's fearful, and yet at the same time, he's expectant. It says that he's waiting for the kingdom of God. One essential characteristic of a Christ follower is that they are a Christ proclaimer. We've seen that. 
Another essential characteristic of a Christ follower is that they're a person who waits for the kingdom of God. So in other words, Joseph possesses two contradictory characteristics. Uh, Luke, Jesus would say earlier in Luke eleven two, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, thy kingdom come. In other words, you're, you're waiting for God's kingdom. A, a disciple expects it and wants it and yearns for that. Luke chapter 12 Verse 36, Jesus says, be like men who are waiting for their master to come from the wedding feast. Verse 37, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Verse 40 of Luke 12, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Luke chapter 21, verse 36, stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. A disciple is one who boldly proclaims Jesus Christ, and Joseph is not doing that. And Jesus has said, the person who denies me before men, I will deny before the Son of God. He said that in the Gospel of Luke. And yet he has also said that a disciple is one who yearns for the kingdom of God. And Joseph is yearning for the kingdom of God. In other words, Joseph is a person full of contradictions. Here's the first thing I want you to see about disciples who are living in a time of darkness. The first thing I want you to see is this, that disciples, disciples struggle and are full of contradictions. Disciples struggle and are full of contradictions. Now, when I say disciples struggle, I don't mean that that's a defining characteristic of what it, what it means to be a disciple. But what I, what I want to say is, is this. If you were to, to pick out any follower of Jesus Christ at, at any moment in their lives, you would find a person who is who has not yet completely arrived, who has not yet fully matured in Christ, you would find if you were to probe deeply enough at any of our lives, you'd, you'd find these contradictions, you'd, you'd find these, these things about us that aren't the way that they're supposed to be. Imagine if you were to look at a building project, this massive building project, and the building project has begun and it hasn't yet been completed. If you were to evaluate the success of the building project as you looked at it halfway, you would not be giving the evaluation a a fair evaluation. You would not be giving the project a fair evaluation. You come into a home that just has the studs up and says, you know, where are the dry, where's the drywall? Where's the electricity? Where's all, you know, it's not completed yet. It's a work in progress. If I were just to tell you, here's Joseph, and, and he's a member of the council. What do you mean he's a member of the council? Those guys just had, there's no way this guy is a Christ follower. There's absolutely no way that he can be a person who's waiting for the kingdom of God. And Luke says, nope, he is. He is a member of the council that just called for Jesus to be crucified and, and was successful in doing so. Joseph is a part of it. He's been a secret disciple. He's been afraid, and he is a person who's waiting for the kingdom of God. When I was in college, I uh, first couple weeks of college, had some friends over for a meal, and this was the first time that I had ever cooked a meal for people. So they, they come in, they, they sit down, and I pull out my, my little electric grill, and I'm going to cook hamburgers for my friends. And so I get out the, 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 the hamburger patties, and uh, there's, there's four of them. There's one of me, so there's five all together. There's only a little space on this little grill for four burgers. They were good size. And uh, we, I begin cooking these burgers. They get brown. I flip them, and they get brown, and I prepare these burgers, and I, I put them on the buns, and I 
give them to my friends, and I fix my burger, and then I come back into the room, and I, I notice that one girl has, has finished her burger, another guy is just kind of taking some nibbles, and I think that's a little interesting. And so I, I bite into my burger, and I, I taste um, bun, ketchup, and raw meat, which was not pleasant. And I, I literally spat out the burger. I said, what in the world is, why are you guys eating this? And they looked at me and they said, why did you serve it to us? You know, That burger was not ready to be taken off the grill yet. <laughs> I learned that. I learned something very interesting about cooking and, and about food poisoning later. Or my friends did. But that, that burger that was on the grill, not ready to be taken off, it wasn't ready to be judged complete yet. But I'll tell you this, those burgers were a lot further along in the process than the burgers that were still in the freezer, right? A believer isn't one whose life is complete. They're a person who's, who's in the process of being prepared. One of our, our foundational verses for our church is from Colossians chapter 1 where Paul says that he's, he's striving, what, to present every person complete or every person mature in Christ. And we haven't arrived there yet, but our, our goal as a church is to help one another mature and, and grow in our walk with the Lord. But here's the sad reality. At any given moment in time, we're strugglers. We're strugglers. We're full of contradictions. There are some things you look at in your life and you'd say, what? I say this about myself, but, but this is true too. God, how can that be? What's the application? I think there's two things. One is this. We don't revel in that. We don't go, hey, I'm just full of contradictions. I'm a disciple. We say, oh God, forgive me. This isn't who I want to be. God, change me. Forgive me. And then the second thing, the second thing is that we're gracious. We're gracious to our fellow disciples. As we look at our sister in Christ who's struggling, we're gracious to her. As we look at our, our brother in Christ, and he tells us about things that are going, in our life, going on in his life, we don't stand in condemnation saying, well, I guess you just aren't really a very good disciple, are you? We, we, we lovingly say, hey, graciously, hey, let's walk through this together. Let's grow. And we do that not from, from condemning each other, from standing above one another, but hey, you know what? We're fellow disciples. Here's our, our, our brother Joseph, and boy, he is full of some sad contradictions, but you know what? So am I. Disciples, as we think about living life in times of darkness, we understand that as we enter those times of darkness, we're, we're disciples who are strugglers, we're full of contradictions, we need the grace of God in our life. How can it be possible? How can it be these dual principles. It's true of, of all of us. In fact, it's interesting, 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, if ever you're feeling like, you know what, um, I'm not sure what it, if Bethany 
I'm not sure if my church, Bethany Community Church, is a very good church or not. Uh, just go to 1 Corinthians. You'll feel way better about yourself, um, but not in a judgmental way. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you, you see Paul, as he addresses this letter to the people in Corinth, he says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ, as you go through the epistle of 1 Corinthians, you're going to see these guys are struggling with some, some very serious sins. They are a church that is, that is struggling with immorality. They're, they're struggling with, with uh, materialism. They're struggling with all sorts of, of, of sin, and it's, it's allowing it to, to permeate the church. And even though they're struggling with those things, he says, look, to this local church, this group of people who are in Corinth, you're, you're sanctified. You're those who are set apart. You have been called by God to be saints. These guys are saints. They are positionally, as God looks at them, he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and he calls them saints, even though they are people who will continue to struggle. You look just a couple chapters over, you go to 1 Corinthians 6, and as you go to 1 Corinthians 6, you, you see the, the, the things that are going on in their life. They're, they're bringing lawsuits against one another. And it comes down to verse 8, and he says, Look, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And, this is a very interesting use of tense here, and such were some of you. In other words, in your identity, you identified as a, a person who was immoral, for example, or a swindler, or someone who was disobedient to parents. That was your identity. But now your identity is different. You're, you're washed. You're sanctified. In other words, you're set apart. You're justified. That is declared righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Disciples struggle, and they're full of contradictions, and perhaps the most profound contradiction is that we have been declared righteous in Jesus Christ. God looks at us and sees Christ's righteousness, and yet we still struggle with sin. Here's the second thing I want you to see about disciples. As we think about disciples and, and being in this time of darkness, number two, disciples grow during times of adversity. Disciples grow during times of adversity. I told you this is an interesting story. This, to me, verses 52 and 53 are, are mind-blowing for me. Here's this guy. Here's this Joseph guy. Secret disciple Joseph. Mr. Fearful. Waiting for the kingdom of God. During the week that Jesus comes into Jerusalem, I mean, everybody is, is pumped and they're excited and, and the religious leaders aren't. But if Joseph was ever going to say, hey, everybody, I'm with this guy, that would have been the time, right? Everybody loves Jesus at that moment. And what does Joseph do? Yeah, it's interesting. Isn't he interesting? I'm a secret disciple. Jesus goes to the temple. Everybody wants, you know, they're hanging on his every word. Jesus, in the temple, destroys the people who are trying to get him to, to, to fall into some sort of contradiction in his statements. He absolutely obliterates them. That would have been the time for Joseph to step up and go, yeah, I'm with that guy. Uh, I'm not with the guys who are looking like morons. I'm with the guy who's making them look like morons. Disciple of Jesus, everybody. He doesn't do that. 
He doesn't do that. The cross comes. Jesus is now dead. To me, logically, that would be the time to say, wow, am I glad I didn't throw in my lot with that guy. That would have been a disaster. But that's not how God uses adversity in Joseph's life, is it? After Jesus dies, Joseph has seen all these things, and Luke tells us he's still a person who's waiting for the kingdom. Adversity reveals something very profound about Joseph. It forces him to choose a side, and God uses adversity. He uses the darkness of the tomb in Joseph's life for him to step up and to be a committed disciple. He uses this to do profound things in Joseph's life. Joseph is wealthy. He has access. And here's what Luke tells us. He tells us that Joseph goes to Pilate. He has the ability to get right to the big guy. and says, Pilate, I would like the body of Jesus. I'm going to personally take care of it. Jesus was assigned a, a burial place with the criminals, with the riffraff, and his, his body would, would be dishonored, and, and Joseph doesn't desire that. And so Joseph steps up, and in a very public setting, he goes straight to Pilate, and he says, I will take the body of Jesus. I will place it in a tomb belonging to my own family. There is a, a very profound sense in which Joseph is publicly identifying with Jesus here at the darkest moment. Notice there's no other disciples that are of the 12 that are with, now 11, that are with Joseph at this time. It doesn't say Joseph and John and Peter all went, those guys are gone. There's only two people who are mentioned, in ter- in two, two men at this point who are mentioned in connection with Jesus, and that's Joseph and in John we see that Nicodemus is with him as well at this, at this time. See that in John 19. So what happens? Joseph, the text tells us, Joseph comes, he publicly identifies himself, he in a public way goes to where Jesus' body is, and he personally takes the body of, of Jesus, and he takes, he and Nicodemus take the body, perhaps they, some, some of uh, Joseph's servants help, but there's Joseph very publicly removing the body of Jesus. He, he takes the, the arms of Jesus, he takes his, his hands and, and removes the nails or brings the, the hands over the nails and he brings his, his feet off of the cross and he places Jesus down and he takes Jesus' body and he washes away the, the muck and the grime and the grit and the sweat and the blood and he pulls out the thorns from Jesus' flesh and he, he begins to prepare Jesus' body for burial. Nicodemus brings some 75, 100 pounds worth of these fragrances, myrrh and, and aloe, and they begin to, to wrap the body of Jesus. Joseph then takes the body of Jesus that's been wrapped, and he takes it to his tomb. Now, a tomb would have been this area that was cut out in the rock, and there'd be a, an entrance about three feet high, and you, could, you would go into this, this tomb area, and you'd, you'd take the body, and there'd be a, a shelf, and so you'd place the body on the shelf, and you'd, leave, and you'd leave, and the body would decompose over the next year, and then you'd come back into the tomb, and you would take the bones, and you'd place them in a box, and you'd place the box in a little uh, enclosure in the tomb, a little kind of a, a shelf area, a slot for that box. The text tells us that this is a new tomb. No body has ever 
decayed in there, and Jesus' body is placed in this tomb, in this position of honor, and Joseph, Joseph does this. Disciples grow during times of adversity. There's something profound here about what Jesus, what Joseph does for Jesus. He fulfills what Isaiah 53, 9 prophesied. They made his grave with the wicked, and he was with a rich man in his death. Joseph provides for him. I didn't, uh, I didn't do a good job communicating what, I, what I'm about to try to communicate here during, during first service. So let me just uh, let me try my, my mulligan here second service. <clears throat> it's interesting to me how God uses difficult times in, in my life as well. And uh, when, when I say that the last month or so has been kind of a, a, a difficult time for, for my family, some of you are so sweet, you'll, you'll, you'll read more into that than I want you to. Just all of us have difficult times we go through, right? And so I'm not, not saying that, you know, there's some sort of crisis or anything, but it's, there's just been some things in our life, and I'm sure this is true of your life as well, that have been difficult over the last two weeks to a month. And that's, that's not something I enjoy, but it's something that this morning I'm very grateful to God for. Friday night we were... Um, as a family, we were reading God's Word together, and uh, we came to Psalm 124. And uh, Whitney and I were, were talking about just tons of things that are going on in our lives. And, and in Psalm 124, the psalmist says just something very beautiful. He says, If it had not been the Lord who is on our side, let, the, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive. And, now, and I read that, and I didn't think about people swallowing me up alive, but just the idea, look, if, if God wasn't on my side, whatever problems come into my life, I, I wouldn't be able to, to deal with. And when I say, if the Lord wasn't on my side, what, what I'm really thinking through is I think about that psalm, if I wasn't on, on the Lord's side, if, if I wasn't placing myself in a position where, where God and I could be on the same side. It's an example, I think, of, of God taking what was a, you know, kind of a, just a, a small, little dark area of our life and saying, here's how I'm going to, to force you to, to think about your relationship with me in a way that if everything was going rosy, if everything was just peaches and cream, I don't even like peaches and cream, if everything was like chocolate chip cookie dough, ice cream, uh, you wouldn't be forced to, to think about these things. You wouldn't, right? If things were just... Uh, perfect, smooth waters with no ripples, then you wouldn't be forced to think about your, your relationship with the Lord and, and things that may not be right in that relationship. Joseph enters a dark time and he's forced to go, huh, there, this isn't right. I've got I've to make a decision. I, I can't just keep going on like this. Friday night, Saturday were, were times like where kind of a culmination of a month kind of, kind of came up and, and just God forced Whitney and I to to, to just encounter some, some things about our lives that, that need to change. 
maybe that's true for you. I don't know. I don't know where you're at this morning. There's, there's another interesting idea that, that maybe some of you are experiencing. Um, the psalmist, and I think this is very applicable as we think about this time. I mean, Joseph is in this time after the cross and, and right up after Jesus' death. And, and right up to Jesus, Jesus dies till he breathes his last. You can imagine like the scenario where, where something happens different, like angels show up and here comes the kingdom, or you can see Jesus, you know, just suddenly doing a miracle, and that you know everybody's dead that was opposing him. And you can see all up until up until that moment, you could see that happening. And then after the resurrection, you could you see uh, the resurrections happen. I mean, whoa! But but you're in the time between that. Joseph is in this time, this weird time between it, where God has, in a way, removed the the visible representation of His presence. Joseph doesn't have any anything logically, from a human perspective, to fall back on. So I mentioned before the Puritan theologians would talk about God's abandoning it, God's abandonment, there's God's desertions, where even though God hasn't really deserted us, there's these moments where we don't feel his presence in the same way. You know, it's easy, again, on a Sunday morning, everybody's singing, and as they're singing, we can, yeah, the Christian life, we can, we can do this thing. But then there's these moments in our lives, these, these periods in our lives, there's the Wednesday, the Thursday, there's Friday, there's Tuesday, and it's like, I don't feel God's presence. Or these, these, there's these months or, or years, stretches where, you know, I, I remember feeling God's presence one way, and I don't feel that the same way right now. There's a variety of reasons that could be, but maybe one of the reasons is that, that God is, is taking you through a period of adversity to force you to grow, to force you to, to build your spiritual muscles, to cause you to, to trust in Him in a more profound way than you would otherwise. And far from being a, a sign of God's displeasure with you, it's, it's a sign of God's grace in your life. I'm going to write that down. It's really good. It's a sign of God's grace in your life. We obey even when it doesn't make sense. When we're in the tomb and, and we're in the darkness of the tomb, we still say, I'm going to follow the light. God's growing us. God's growing us. Here's the third thing I want you to see about disciples in the tomb. The third thing is that disciples love Jesus. Disciples love Jesus. It's not just Nicodemus. It's not just Joseph who reveal their love for the Lord. There's some women there as well. We'll talk about them more next week. But Luke tells us in verse 54, that it's the day of preparation. In other words, it's, it's uh, right before the Sabbath. It's the day before Sabbath or the day before a feast. It's called the day of preparation. And remember, their days go from 6 p.m. to 6 p.m., roughly. And now we're, we're, it's Friday night. It's about to hit 6 p.m. Friday. And when it hits 6 p.m. Friday, it's going to be Saturday. It's going to be the, the Sabbath. And it's about to begin. And so what's happened is Jesus has died at 3. Uh, Sabbath is going to start at, at 6. And so Joseph is trying to ca- take care of the body of, of Jesus and provide him a, a place in the tomb. And, and some women are, 
there as well. They're following. They don't understand quite what's happened. They, they've come from Galilee, and they see the tomb. They see how his body is laid, and, and you get this sense. I, I love this picture of these women. These are such precious, precious women. They're the women who've been following him since Galilee. There's some women there of means who have the ability to provide. They're, they're just women who love Jesus. And you just, in your mind's eye, you can kind of see them, them watching and seeing how, and I'm sure Nicodemus and Joseph are being very loving in how they're, they're caring for the body of Jesus, but you can just kind of see the women going, no, we're going to have to come back. Yeah. That's not how we do it. So they go, and they're preparing these, 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 these spices and fragrances to, to do it right. Disciples love Jesus. And even though it's a time of darkness, it, it doesn't change the fact that these women and that Joseph and that Nicodemus have realized they love Jesus and they're going to follow him. And there's a profound difference from following Jesus in the darkness of a tomb because you have to and, and, and following him because you love him and get to follow him. There's a profound difference there. In fact, I, this past week, and I've mentioned, I, I've talked about this with my kids before, but this past week, again, we were watching some television show with a prince and a princess, and, you know, the, in the story, the, the prince and the princess are separated, and then this, this force springs them back together, and as they're brought back together, they go, oh, I guess we love each other because there's this force that emotionally draws us together. And, you know, I stopped the movie. I was okay, guys, we're going to talk about love again. Uh, Dad is going to lecture you on love. And so we talked about princesses and princes, and we talked about what love is. And I said, okay, um, now Daddy, Daddy feels everything emotionally for Mommy that the prince and princess felt for each other. But the reason I feel that way about your mom isn't because of some magical force. Mom and dad have committed before God to love each other. Love doesn't mean an emotion. It means I'm sacrificially committing to care for your mom no matter what, and she's going to care for me no matter what. And it's, it's this commitment. It's not this, this, um, this, this emotional thing that we can go in and out of. It's a decision that God has, has given us by, by his grace, and he's going to provide for us to continue. And I'm going on and on. And, um, and we talked about how emotions flow out of that. And I said, yeah, I, I love being with your mom, and I, I, I emotionally enjoy the time with I, with, that I spend with her and she does with me, but it's not because of this magical force called love. It's because we've, we've made a commitment before God, and, and there's joy in doing things for each other. And as I'm saying this, amazing theological treaties on love, my uh, youngest child is doing backflips off the couch, and she's the one who needs this message the most because she loves princesses. And so I, I stop her and I say, sweetheart, that's a wonderful backflip that you're not supposed to be doing on the furniture. Daddy is giving you these words of wisdom. Can you please tell me what daddy just said? And she said, yeah, you said mom doesn't want to like you, but she has to. said, that's right. That's right, sweetheart. But not totally right. Mom loves me, and she loves to do things for you and for me. She, she does those things. It grows out of this love that she has. It's not some legalistic obligation. It's this commitment, yes, but it's this, this love. When we find ourselves in the darkness of the tomb, 
we realize we are disciples who are full of contradictions. We struggle. We realize, though, that, that even though that we're, we're disciples that are, that are full of, of these contradictions, God has brought us in this time of darkness to grow us, to grow us in our relationship with him. And so we love him and we continue and we continue and we continue to pursue him. Even in the darkness of the tomb, we follow the light. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Joseph's life. We thank you for the lives of these women, for Nicodemus, who, who in this, this darkest time of, of their lives, where things made the least amount of sense, they determined that they were going to continue to, to love you and follow you. Give us similar grace. We pray in your son Jesus' name. Amen.